Hey guys, I just want to tell you a little bit about our Podcasts app which is now live on the App Store. It's the world's first audio-driven app for experiencing medicine. Every week you can step into the shoes of doctors with an engaging case and quiz. Download now and have a look for yourself. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrub Den podcast. This week we have a guest who is far 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 away. We have with us Dr. Josh Case, who is a doctor based in Australia, who also happens to be a software developer and he is on this amazing quest to teach clinical students, doctors, medics on how to code and become software developers even if they don't have any technical background and this is all to make hospitals more efficient improve patient care and allow us to go into this new and amazing wonderful world so a massive pleasure to have you onto the show Josh how are you I'm very well thank you very much for that warm introduction guys I'm um, always overwhelmed when people sort of describe me like that it sounds um makes me sound a lot more important than I, I certainly feel. So thank you very much for, <laughs> no, for the royal. You are everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to show how far he is, it's currently 10 p.m. UK, London, GMT time, and where Josh is, it's, it's the next day. It's, it's 8 in the morning. Yeah, he's starting his right. day. He's starting his day. <laughs> yeah, We're coming to on him. the other side of the world. I don't think we could get further apart, but uh, here we are. We're going to touch on, you know, coding, developing, you know, what you're doing now, all the fun projects you've done. But yeah. as the scrubbed in style is, we're going to take it all the way back mm. to a young Josh when he decided he wanted to grow up and he wants to be a doctor and yeah. briefly cover that story up into kind of present day and we can kind of talk about things a bit more. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so it all starts fairly early for me um, in terms of my interest in medicine. Um, I didn't really have a strong kind of family history of doctors in the family and that kind of thing. I did have a number of family friends who um, were in the profession and that always seemed very, um, you know, intriguing to me. I had, I had very strong interest in, I think like many um, people who I work with now, I had quite strong interest in, you know, maths, science, physiology, the human body. And to be honest with you, you know, sports science, I was quite sporty growing up. Um, and and a, at a core, a real, I guess, fascination with how the human body worked. Um, and I was fortunate to be, you know, I had, as far as upbringings go, pretty much an idyllic upbringing. You know, my parents worked night and day to get all me and my siblings, you know, the things we needed for school, a fantastic education. They had, <laughs> they had a couple of years there where outside of work, I don't think they did anything but drop us at you know sports and music lessons and all they did was drive you know one kid to the next location just constantly so I had pretty much absolutely you know I had more than I needed growing up on that front and you know I think in addition to being fascinated with you know physiology and how the human body works I really wanted a uh, a people focused profession you know I didn't want to be working on spreadsheets all day I wanted to be interacting with people diverse people you know a real cross-section of society you know people that you might not mingle with in your day-to-day -day life I really enjoyed that kind of diversity um, and I, I had a you know a couple of overseas experiences early um, you know sort of in my early teenage years I was lucky to go to um, East Timor um, which is a, most, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with East Timor. It's a tiny little country. It's about 50 minutes north of uh, Australia. It's um, formerly um, 
owned or formerly belonging to Indonesia. Um, and they've had a very complex history. They had a civil war, etc. But they, um, the Australians are indebted to them a lot for, um, they've helped us through the world wars, basically. And in, you know, in East Timor, I saw a whole, um, you know, range of, um, uh, range of quality of lives. You know, I saw lots of people who didn't have good access to healthcare. And so I suppose on that side, I had a bit of a fledgling interest in global health as well. So if you combine all of those things, you know, I wanted a people-focused career. I wanted, you know, to pursue excellence in sort of maths and science. And then also that sort of global health thing, you know, natural uh, medicine felt like a very natural progression for me. I suppose on the other side of things, I had, um, you know, a very um, sort of tinkering mindset. You know, from this, the moment I could put my hands on a keyboard, I wanted to muck around with a computer. And I can, I think, you know, I can remember at the age of five or six, there was some sort of encyclopedia game back on, you know, Windows 95. That the questions were ridiculous. I, I think I would just guess my way through. But that, um, you know, being able to interact with these, um, you know, essentially boxes of information really just um, inspired me to sort of go down this wormhole um, that sort of eventuated into the, um, you know, tech skills that I have today. Yeah. Uh, walk us through your sort of medical school years and how the tech world essentially collided with that and then fused. Yeah, yeah. This is, um, it's quite interesting sort of how this all happened. I, um, so I, um, graduated high school and in Australia we have this sort of combined undergraduate postgraduate program so I, ha- I had left um, high school and I had um, uh, did a three-year Bachelor of Science majoring in biomedical sciences and then I did a four-year postgraduate MD uh, in Brisbane and by the time I had gotten to university I'd, um, I'd, I'd started sort of becoming more interested in you know publishing my technology projects you know, sort of in the context of like a mm. side project or like a side business, side hustle, whatever you want to call it. Um, and during my undergrad, my, my science degree, I'd started um, combining my, um, my, <laughs> my course revision and my tech skills. So I was building things like um, basically little quiz apps that I would share with my classmates that would have content from all of our exams. I think I... <laughs> I, I was to be honest with you it was an the ultimate form of procrastination because i would spend you know an hour or two preparing the material for this quiz app but then i'd spend three days like building the actual quiz app it didn't get me any grades you know but i I think it let me feel like i was working on uh working on my material um and they they started sort of escalating you know it started as like a very simple um you know web application sort of multiple choice type exam and then I released a few mm. mobile apps for specific university courses and a few of them I maintained for a couple of years after finishing that course. You know, I was still providing updates. Um, and then by the time I got to postgraduate medicine, I had a team of students who were working with me to make um, medical revision content that I basically had a platform that um, organized it, put it into topics, let people cre- generate quizzes based on all these material that we've created so it, it was it was kind of escalating and getting more complex and i was, I was loving it to be honest mm. it was a, a great way to contribute to my um, medical school cohort community but also you know sharpen my tech skills you know um exactly. new things experiment you know and that's really one of the things that i love about programming is that ability to sort of experiment and create um and mm. so by the time but you know coming into the last year or two of medical school i had you know 
established a local reputation as this kind of technology guy who um you know was pr producing all these practice exams all these practice exam generators and quizzes and um and by that stage you know a lot of the doctors in the hospitals where i was doing clinical placements were at least familiar with the types of things that i was doing um and i had a an ed registrar approach me and say oh look you know we've got this problem down in the emergency department it relates to um, I don't know if you guys have Rotem over there, but basically a Rotem is a functional test of blood clotting. Do you guys know what a Rotem is? I don't want to explain that. Um, just for the audience, anyone in the audience who doesn't know, you take some blood, you spin it around, and based on how thick or thin the blood is and a couple of other parameters, for example, how long does the blood take to clot? You know, is it thick, is it thin? The clot long or is it short? Based on the shape of this clot, you can decide what, blood products you need to give someone in a trauma. So if someone's come in but hit, been hit by a car or whatever, they've lost lots of blood, you take a, a Rotem sample off them, you spin it around in the machine and you can decide if you need to give red blood cells or platelets or fibrinogen, whatever you need to give. <clears throat> the problem is that this machine spits out these numbers that are very hard to um, sort of interpret. And <laughs> the emergency department had a big A3 poster that so a major trauma comes in, they take the rotum, they run the rotum sample, and then they would go to this A3 poster and kind of like follow through this guideline. Um, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, yeah. a real genuine like major trauma emergency. They had this A3 um, <laughs> guideline that was sort of the bottom. I'm sure that was the most time consuming bit, <laughs> <laughs> just sitting there in front of a poster. Yeah. like <laughs> Running your finger through this algorithm. And so basically all I did was... Um, take that guideline and turn it into a, an in-your-pocket mobile app. It's a very simple app. It, it essentially just sort of streamlines the process of deciding what blood products to give in a major trauma. Um, and that was the first, probably the first time that I realized, oh, look, you know, there are real opportunities here that and I've got genuine skills yeah. that I can, I can solve and I can apply in a, in a clinical environment. Um, and so, you know, from there, um, things have continued to evolve. You know, I uh, actually did some work outside of health for a little while. Um, that was in between the summer of medical school and actually working as a doctor, I needed some money. So I built a, um, a dashboard for a company that works with the Department of Education because we, uh, we're a country with unique um, geographical challenges. Our schools actually share classrooms because the population in regional towns goes up and down so much. They pick up classrooms, yeah. move them to another school and drop them. Um, and this organization basically needed a dashboard to help them track where all their classrooms are, which sounds kind of outrageous, doesn't it? But um, so I built that and then working as a junior doctor in, um, in, in Australia and, you know, I've worked at how many, four or five hospitals now. Um, I just saw lots and lots of opportunity to um, continue to progress um, or continue to apply the, the tech skills that I had. Hmm. At what point did you kind of, so this is a passion, yeah. this is something you enjoy. Yeah. You realize that you're solving a lot of problems through kind of tech leveraging yeah. that. At what point did you transition into, all right, let me start helping other people yeah. to code. Yeah. When did that kind of switch on? And before that, Josh, there's a lot of students that are listening to us that are kind of not medical students, but even pre-med school, right? If you don't mind, explain to us what coding is or developing, because this is a term thrown around that yeah. personally I don't really understand. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you need to kind of explain yeah. it to our listeners, because I'm sure you know everyone's a coder, developer, either the same thing. Is it synonymous? 
explain what developing yeah. a coding is, bro. Just for the record, yeah. um, yeah. Abdul Abdul tried to learn coding in one day, so he so he gave up. <laughs> well, the first thing to say is, unfortunately, Rome wasn't built in a day, um, and so it, it can be um, can be a long road. But I don't want to just so I'll answer your, your 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 second question first, and then maybe we can come back to the to the first question mm. after or at a later date. Um, so, in its simplest terms, um, I, I like to prefer call all of this, I guess, programming is kind of like the umbrella term. Um, and the reason for that is if I say coding on Twitter, there seems to be some sort of cohort in the medical community that thinks I'm referring to um, clinical coding, which is where, um, for example, after a hospital admission, someone will go through the admission mm. notes and code the admission so they can work out how much to bill the government for. <laughs> it's a completely unrelated yeah. thing. It's, it's a sort of administrative thing that has to happen in hospitals. So I'm referring to, I guess, computer pro programming. And that is an umbrella term that refers to, at its core, writing a very specific set of instructions to, um, for a computer to follow. Okay, that's a very sort of general definition. And so most or most of the general public, Abdul and, you know, everyone else who interacts with the computer uses what's called a user interface, you know, a website that has buttons that you click on or, um, you know, a mobile app that has, you know, things that you swipe on and tap. And those are all interfaces. Those are all human facing um, interfaces that let you execute instructions on a device programming on the other hand is where you sort of take that interface away i'm no longer clicking buttons and swiping and tapping and zooming and all this sort of stuff and i'm writing a very specific set of instructions for the computer to interpret directly and what you can do with that mm -hmm. kind of with these sorts of skills it's really really broad and i i you know i, I don't provide any real opinion about um where people should take their pro programming skills if they choose to learn them. But some of the things that can help you do are make websites, make mobile apps, um, create machine learning models, and importantly, deploy those machine learning models because you know those models aren't very useful when they're in a in a test tube. We need them out in the real world if we want to de derive value from them. Yeah. You can write um, scripts to automate tasks. So if you have trivial, like an example I like to use is um, when the roster man at your hospital or man or woman at your hospital sends you the latest email update um, in a PDF form or whatever awful format they use, if you wanted to, you could write a script that would repeatedly check your email inbox for these emails and then filter them all onto your Google Calendar or whatever calendar app you use. You can do things like... Um, harvesting and analyzing data for research purposes you know if there are any iterative research tasks you know i need to go through um uh all of these photos i don't know you know if you've got some photos of agar plates and you want to um i don't know depending on your research application you can you can automate um things to do with you know large data sets or even data collection so surveys over time and all that sort of thing and i i think um trying to define exactly what you can and can't do with programming is actually quite difficult. And the reason is this world is sort of so broad. It's this fantastic um, uh, potato sack of opportunities. There's, you know, depending on what sort of field you're working in or what your interests are, or what the challenges are in front of you, programming is likely to provide a whole tool set that'll enable you to, 
to navigate those in an exciting and innovative way. And I think um, as, a, as a profession in medicine, in, in healthcare, we are stereotypically dogmatic. We are traditionalist. We, you know, we, because it's, you know, at its core, it's an apprenticeship. We learn so much from the generations before us. Um, we're defensive, we're risk avert, we're risk averse. You know, we don't like to take risks. Um, I think all of those reasons have meant that, um, all those reasons and more have meant that um, healthcare industries haven't adopted technology at the rate that other industries are capable of. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever be, I don't think we'll ever be able to adopt it as fast as other industries are because of the unique challenges we have. But I do think we can adopt it faster than we can now. And I think more more clinicians uh, and more people in the healthcare sector thinking about technology, engaging with technology will reduce the friction that we um, for high quality healthcare innovation. Takes me back to the question which I first posed was, at what point did it go from, hey, I'm doing cool things, I'm really making a difference to becoming a teacher, helping the rest of the medical world and community kind of do that. And what are some of the challenges you faced in terms of getting this information across to those individuals based on the fact that- Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of where, you know, the desire to be a contact point or like a community kind of member for um, people wanting to engage with this stuff and wanting to learn about it, um, I think, as I made the transition towards making technology a bigger part of my life, I encountered a lot of people of all levels of training, you know, from first year medical students right through to consults and physicians of any kind who were basically saying things like, oh, I would love to be able to do that. I'd love to be able to work on these jobs. I just don't know how. I don't know how to get started. Um, And I think, you know, medical training is long. It's difficult. It's, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And these people are you know, that as a general rule, are time poor. Um, but I did feel that, um, you know, as a hobby, as a, as a, um, I basically felt that people were capable of a lot more than, than they felt they were. Because in the, in the, you know, there's never been a better time to get into programming. Like the tools that we have available at the moment, and I'm not, you know, not just programming, but just technology in general, the tools we have available at the moment make it easier than it's ever been to, to build things, to create things, to um, to innovate in your own day-to-day life. And I basically saw a huge disconnect between um, what people thought they were capable of and what they are actually capable of. And so um, that's, that was one reason. Another reason was, you know, I perhaps we can talk more about this in a second, but I've, I've recently sort of um, reduce my clinical hours quite significantly. So I only work half time as a doctor now and the other half time I work for myself trying to build technologies to make hospitals safer and more efficient. Um, it's a little bit complicated how <laughs> that's going. But um, so, you know, if I want to build those technologies um, in healthcare, that doesn't happen in days or weeks. You know, that happens in no. months or years. That's sort of the time frame that you're dealing with. And, you know, I kind of had this internal realization, well, you know, me sitting here in my pajamas trying to make apps to make our hospital safer and more efficient is one way that I can have impact. But I, I kind of see that as a long-term play. I see that as a, it's probably going to take at least 12 months for me to make something um, 
meaningful at the scale that I want it to be at. You know, I'm talking sort of national or global impact. If I want to make something at that level, it's going to take that long. And so I wanted something that I guess I could see progress on a on a smaller time scale. So by planting these seeds of um, interest, these seeds of motivation for other clinicians all around the world to start their own technology journey, to start building their own things, to start engaging with problems in their healthcare system. I saw that as a way that I could have a national or global impact um, in a much quicker time frame. And I've, over probably the six months or so that I've been producing articles, I've been doing a couple of little sort of conferences, I've been doing a few programming classes. It's been unbelievable to see, one, the level of interest um, from people around the world, and two, there's this real sort of... um, real real groundswell for medtech and health tech probably over the last two years but particularly over the last year i think more and more people in traditional medicine are starting to see it as a genuine sort of genuinely viable career option and um being you know you know having these workshops that i've done online and seeing people who after the workshop say wow i'd never even considered this career path i'd never even considered that i'd be able to code and then you know, mm. saying, I feel like I can get started now. I feel like I can do this. I feel like I can build this. And then in a handful of cases, weeks or months later, seeing um, things that people have built after, you know, going to one of my workshops fairly early on, that's just been extremely rewarding. Yeah. So it's, it's very much fulfilled that um, desire to make impact on a sort of weeks or months scale. I hope that rant sort of yeah. made some sense. <laughs> yeah, no. it did. It's really incredible because programming is it sounds limitless in terms of what you can build the impact that you can have and it's just it really sounds endless now in terms of clinicians and medical students say they had an idea they've coded a product from your journey tell if you could advise us on how do we get our product to be tested in the clinical environment how did you actually go about that or how did you get your for that particular A and E uh, particular challenge that you had, how did you get that into the workplace? Because often what happens is you produce something, you show it to someone, and it's like, oh, that's nice, it's very good, but it's not to be in my yeah. workplace or not to be in the on the wards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, great question. And to be honest with you, this is something that I'm still grappling with. You know, trying to do this for a living mm-hmm. now. You know, it's one thing to do these things for a you know a side hustle, a side project, something for your CV. But to do it for a living is a different um, can of worms and it's a beast that I'm grappling with day to day. So the things I'm about to share are with the caveat that I am not an expert on this. I wish I was and hopefully in a, in a year or so I will be. But um, translating technology from the test tube to the clinical environment is is a challenge yeah. across industries. I'm not just talking about computer science. I'm talking about clinical science, anything. Anything. It's translating that stuff is extremely difficult because the change management associated with, you know, the change management and the regulation associated with hospitals and healthcare services is very difficult. It's very difficult to navigate and there's very high um, thresholds, you know, you know, for reasons of patient safety and and regulation, all that sort of stuff. And um, I'm not for a minute suggesting that shouldn't be there, but I think it's clear that everyone understands Mm -hmm. it is hard. It is very hard. Okay. These are um, some of the things that have that have helped me. Okay, so first of all, I think that um, deploying things into a clinical environment or a um, or a clinical tool. So by that I mean apps that handle patient information or apps that have an output that could harm a patient. 
that not a beginner level task unfortunately that's you know once you start talking about making recommendations for um you know what drug dose etc what this that the other um that gets really really complicated and you, you're likely to need a very high um like you know you, we're talking you know um, regulatory bodies now to approve your application and all that sort of stuff like it's it is doable but it's not very doable for um the small projects it's not very doable for you and your buddy in your pajamas you know trying to get something or you know yeah. it's 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 you need to be quite big to go down that road um that, that's what has actually led to this um kind of chasm where there are pro pro problems in health that are in a sense too small to solve they're too small because the amount of value that create is not enough to overcome this sort of regulatory um hurdle that you need yeah. to overcome that's a sort of a topic for another time so but what i recommend is um for you know beginner and intermediate programmers focus on things that don't meet those two criteria things that don't handle patient data and um uh, and apps that or tools that a dodgy output from which won't directly harm a patient now at first glance that sounds like it takes away a lot of the um exciting medtech ideas and in a sense it does but depending on the um hospital or health service that you operate in there's likely to be a whole a whole host of low lying fruit that um you can go after so things that rely on double or triple handle handling of of information of any kind um tools that rely on organizing information so fetching it from multiple sources and putting it in one location um you know, MedEd. MedEd is an absolute treasure trove for ideas that are safe for beginners to muck around with. You know, um, websites, quizzes. You know, there's um, there's a few cool developers on um, sort of Medi developers on Twitter working on this. It's sort of this emergency department app where you rapidly triage ECGs and rapidly triage patients. And MedEd is a really good place mm -hmm. to get started with because it's safe. You know, if you have you know, dodgy output in one of those apps, you know, maybe someone will lose a mark on their exam, but, you know, no one is likely to come to harm directly as a result of that. So exactly. you can launch those kinds of things quite quickly, quite, you know, and that's a good way to sharpen your tech skills. In terms of actually getting something deployed, um, a few things that have helped me have, in fact, the biggest thing that's helped me is having a senior clinical champion who backs you. So, you know, as a junior doc, as a first year or second year junior doctor, it's very hard to get a seat at the table with the executives, you know, the big decision makers inside a hospital environment. But if you've got, it's normally a consultant or a head of a department or a nurse unit manager or someone senior who is backing you, they can sort of cut away a lot of that red tape. You know, when they make a phone call, mm -hmm. people answer and their emails get responded to within the week, you know, whereas you, you kind of go in this, <laughs> or at least for me, I, I yeah. went in this uh, pipe dream kind of basket and like it would, you know, I had sort of a three-month email cycle back, um, back and forth with these people. But once I had, I've, you know, I'm at another hospital now as well. I had a senior consultant an ed consultant a staff specialist in both of those hospitals who are backing me who are pushing with me who are cutting the red tape um a lot of those sort of bureaucratic barriers fell away and i was getting a sort of a lot more attention the natural follow-up mm. question to that is well how do i get a senior clinician um on my side how do i yeah. work with me and um to help me cut through all this you know they're busy they've got a whole lot on their plate how does that happen the way that you do that 
is that you actually start with that senior clinician and say, well, what are the problems that you need solving? And if you, if they, if you are solving a problem that they genuinely need solved, they will, they should, by definition, go you know, out of their way to help you. If you're finding that um, you know, they're not willing to help you, you know, it's not going anywhere, that may be a sign that you're solving something that doesn't really scratch a big need for them. And that's okay. Um, but um, if they have burning pain from a problem and you solve it, that incentivizes them to get this thing deployed. So that's, that's, that's kind of one way that you can approach this. Um, I will also say that, um, you know, you've got to be patient and it's, it can be sometimes hard to know the difference between, is this just kind of like baseline level of hospital bureaucracy or uh, is this the world telling me this is not going to be a thing? This is like this. <laughs> and I, that's, that's I'm yeah. navigating the difference between, um, you know, I've spoken to some brilliant, um, you know, other health tech entrepreneurs who've been at this for, you know, five, 10 years, that sort of thing. Some people have had some very, very mm. successful um, exits and that sort of thing. And they've all said, well, if you're looking to get paid for something you're deploying, that sales cycle is going to be 12 to 18 months at a minimum. So that's from first contact to the time money exchanging hands for a product or service. And that's just, that's just almost a, a universal standard. You know, maybe it's different in COVID. Time yeah. Where, yeah. Um, you know, some of these rules have been bent and some of these processes have been trimmed down. Um, so, so I guess in summary, um, it's hard to get your app deployed. So as a beginner, I'd keep it simple. Um, avoid those two criteria if you can, just to keep everyone safe. Um, and look at MedEd is a really good starting point for someone who um, is mm. in the tech, uh, medical space, but also wanting to get into the tech space. There's a whole heap of um, projects there for grabbing. Mm -hmm. And then when you do get to the point that you want to deploy, deploy something, um, get a, a senior clinical champion on board. And the way that you do that is by solving their problem. And I guess the other thing to add would be um, you know, involve legal services or regulatory services early in the discussion. If, if it applies to your product, involve yeah. them early. We went through like quite a lengthy process with our hospital around the legality of it all and a quality assurance type pipeline that we had to build. Um, involve, start addressing those problems early rather than getting to a point where your thing is perfect. You know, it's taken you eight months to build it and now you're starting to think about yeah. that kind of thing. Um, you know, when you're at the concept phase, when you've got some designs drawn up, send them early, get that, because those they, they all take time and they can be humming away in the background while you're actually building your thing. I think that's sound advice. And I like the fact that getting a champion or getting a senior doctor and how to land them is very important. And I think that's quite crucial. And I'm glad you mentioned that. And it kind of leads on to my next question, which is there's this move in terms of the no code era of you know you know lots of platforms where you don't need to learn a single piece of code it's drag and drop yeah so we're now in this position do we invest our time learning how to you know learn python or do we go double down on these no code platforms what would your advice be because i'm sure there are people in that junction yeah absolutely so to be clear, I'm 100% on board with no code. I think it's awesome. I think it's going to be um, make these things, these types of things, even more accessible to um, more people. You know, people, or it's going to make more people feel capable of, of building these types of things. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll I guess it, it sounds obvious, but, but remember, at the end of the day, you know, I said right at the beginning of this episode, you know, I'm about. I wanted a people-focused career and, you know, I have interest in global health. So the end game for me is 
it's about making change. It's about innovating. It's about, um, you know, it's making hospitals safer and more efficient. It's about making the world better. It's not about ones and zeros. It's not about being, you know, having the most efficient algorithm. Um, and so to that end, um, my, the movement that I'm trying to propel is clinicians engaging with technology. It's not necessarily clinicians writing code. So given that the end game is to make change in our, our, um, in, in our clinical, clinical environments, programming is just one tool. No code is another tool that you can use. So they are all tools at your disposal and they are all geared towards that end goal of, of making our systems more efficient. So I support EDA. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're, you know, no code is um, space every day. You know, there's wonderful tools being built. And to be honest with you, I'm not that well versed on, you know, which of the best ones are because as a programmer, I haven't needed them. I, I, I like to be in control and I like to build things for myself. Um, yeah. I, you know, sort of in principle, in a no-code environment, you can kind of get, um, you know, if, if you want some sort of feature that's not supported by your no-code um, environment yet, it can get a little bit difficult. Um, you know, because you, you kind of, if you've built it on another platform and you want to, I don't know, interact with Twitter or you want to do something else, not you, you kind of um, married to that platform in, in a sense. So I guess what I'd, I'd recommend for people who aren't sure is think of a, you know, some sort of simple project that you want to build by yourself. Is it a, um, you know, if let's say it's in MedEd, you know, it's, you know, some sort of quiz website all about cardiology because you think you might want to be a cardiologist one day and it's all got some ECGs and all that sort of stuff in there. I would say build as much of it as you can with no code, get as far as you can. And then at some point you may reach a point where you're like, okay, um, there's some sort of functionality now that it's going to be really hard to build inside this platform. Can I learn a bit of Python to bridge the gap? Can I, you know, and some of these no-code tools have like um, the option to sort of drop your own components in as well, like your own little scripts and stuff. Um, mm. Because I don't think, you know, um, um, because of how powerful these tools are, a lot of these apps are going to be able to be built without needing to write your own Python. And I think you should sort of let that become a problem before you solve it. So get your app as far as you can before you need to learn to code and then, um, and then you know, learn whatever you need to kind of bridge the gap between whatever no-code platform you're on um, and, and the outcome that you want for your, for your app. And I, I guess that's one approach. Um, uh, another approach would be to... Um, you know, take things from first principles with, you know, your Python or your PHP or your JavaScript, your TypeScript, you know, whatever other language. This is probably, a, um, I have kind of a whole discussion around this that's made perhaps outside the scope of this episode. But um, at the end of the day, just remember the difference is to make change. No code, your own code, whatever else. Those are just tools. So um, you can choose either and you can still have that same outcome. Yeah. And I love your vision and it's and i'm glad you reiterated it where it's you want to help doctors and clinicians become familiar with technology as a whole yeah as to coding programming designing and interfaces yeah and that having listened to you say that now it makes sense as to what you're doing yeah and i think it's super super important and i remember a podcast we did before it was like we shouldn't be really worried about computers and AI taking over doctors. We should be worried about the doctors that are 
unfamiliar with them being left behind yeah. and i thought that yeah. was oh, yeah. very apt do you see mm. and then yes. okay yeah. now i get it and then i'm like okay my mate on the other side of the world is saying the same thing all right let's do something um which brings us on to the next question and i know you've done a podcast and we're hopefully going to make a series on how to get started yes. but just yeah. what are a handful of tips of people that are listen to this episode so far and like damn right i need to get going what can they do the first thing i'd say is uh don't let the analysis paralysis you know stop you from proceeding by that i mean um you know i guess in medicine we're kind of um there's lots of sort of type a personalities who want to do the absolute optimal way to kind of do something and um what that leads to for people trying to get into programming is which what is the absolute best programming language for you know what's the best overall programming language? Unfortunately, there's there's no yeah. clear answer to that. There are some that are better than others, but there's no slam dunk answer to um, to that question. Um, and I do have a process where I sort of talk about, I talk to people um, and I sort of work out what types of things they want to build and I can kind of give them the right programming language to start learning because it can vary a little bit. Um, but for the most part, it doesn't matter. So programming languages are not really like spoken languages where um, even if you've learned, you know, it gets a little bit easier to learn spoken languages the more you learn. Um, but in programming, it's a lot easier. Once you've learned, like if once you know one language quite well, you can translate it quite, you know, you're not going to be as efficient as you are in another language, but you know the concepts, you know the patterns, you know... Um, how a program should flow, you know, loosely how a computer should work. So what that means is, is it actually doesn't matter that much what your first programming language is because you will retain at least half or three quarters of, you know, if you, if you started in Python, let's say, and then at some point you wanted to switch to JavaScript because for a new project that you're working on, you'll retain at least half or three quarters of that kind of core programming um, knowledge with you in a new programming language. So don't. what that means is for a beginner, don't worry about which language you're going to use. Just start, just get started. Okay. The second thing I say is, um, so tutorials are good. They're really, really good for um, finding your feet. And exactly what finding your feet means is a little bit, um, a little bit poorly defined, but that's okay. And what I recommend is that you follow these tutorials until you've found your feet. And so that might be, can I make a very simple interface? Can I run a script? Can I do this, that, the other? What, um, you know, um, and once you've found your feet, it's actually time to drop the tutorials and then just try and build your own things. What I find is, you know, a lot of these tutorial websites will sell you tutorials until you're blue in the face. So they'll, they'll give you, you know, because especially with this future model, but honestly, they, <laughs> they will um, give you exercises until you're up to number 890 and then you're working on this very sort of like niche functionality of the language that like solves this problem that you're still a year away from encountering and it's a, yeah. a trap you can fall into and i think medics are particularly predisposed to this sort of trap where you know during your undergrad to ace the chemistry exam you get the chemistry book open you do every single question in the book yeah yeah exactly you're, you're 88 you're 90 percent, and you're that's true that actually doesn't apply, to, unfortunately, to programming. Um, you know, I'm sure you could probably become a very good programmer that way, but I guess jumping back to my earlier point, the point is not to become an excellent programmer. The point is to become an excellent creator, 
a maker, a developer, mm. create. Yeah. And these tutorials, you know, don't teach you things like, okay, I've got this problem that I've never solved before. How do I go about and solving that? Go about solving that without, you know, there's not going to be no set of instructions to build this thing that I've never created. You know, none of these exist in the world. There's no not going to be a tutorial to show me how to build this. So the skills that you need are, you know, finding information on the internet rapidly, and that it's all out there. But you do have to grab the information and tailor it to your situation and drop it into your code. Two, um, debugging or troubleshooting your own code. So when you've always got a tutorial that you can copy and paste from, any real genuine problem that you encounter is very easily solved. But when you start building your own things. I want to get this technology to marry to this technology. Well, you might be one of a handful of people that has ever tried to do that before. There's going to be problems there. So um, how to troubleshoot and debug your own problems is a skill that you develop by building, trying to build things um, that have never existed before. Um, and I have, you know, I guess more, um, more specific advice that I'm happy to give people about, you know, what language they should learn, what, you know, um, how to get started, good mm. resources, etc., which I'm happy to perhaps share with you guys and put in the show notes or if anyone has specific questions, I'm happy yeah. for them to mm. share with me, uh, ask me yeah. directly. But in summary, um, just start, choose any programming la language you want, go to any of a number of fantastic tutorial websites or YouTubers, you know, there's some great YouTubers I can send over as well. Follow along with one of the tutorials enough to find your feet and after that point, just try to build things. Keep it simple at first and sort of gradually increase in complexity, but just try to build things. And it's that leap that going from tutorials to actually building things on your own that seems to be the mm. most difficult yeah. um, because it's so uncertain, but but it's what you need to do to sort of become a maker, become a creator. Um, Josh, I love how frank and honest you are with all, all of the advice and it's also practical for our listeners. Um, so you've got some resources, right, for our listeners. What can they access that's yours? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a blog where I write a lot about um, these types of things. You know, I, I document the, pro, uh, the projects that I'm working on, the challenges that I'm exploring. I try to be as transparent as possible. I think you can definitely fall mm. into this med tech trap where you know everything has to be sexy everything has to be awesome. everything has to be blockchain everything has to be money <laughs> everything has to be explosively successful you know and i launch lots of stuff not yeah. successful things that i shut down things mm. that are stressful things that are um and i try to be as transparent as i can about that kind of thing and mm. that, that has had this sort of bizarrely magnetic effect where people seem to connect with the types of content that i'm putting out more so mm. i have a blog where i talk about that um, I also have, I'm hoping to, um, you know, maybe by the time this is released, I'm hoping to have some short video tutorials available on YouTube as well. Hmm. I'm also um, the, author of a, the author of a book about, um, an it's called Code Blue, an introduction to programming for doctors and medical students. There is a fee associated with the book. However, I don't think you need to pay to learn to code. There are awesome, um, you know, free YouTube tutorials. There's aw awesome, um, you know, other free tutorial websites. I guess it's more of a way um, if you're interested in supporting my work, I guess that's where that comes in. Mm. Um, mm. But to be clear, you know, if you message me, none of my advice is conditional on you paying me anything. As I said, this is all about a mm. movement to mm. get healthcare services innovating across the world and it's not really about profiteering for me. So um, I'm very happy oh, to be involved with people directly. <clears throat> Out of curiosity, yeah. and you always hear, you know, in the 90s, Elon Musk used to spend the whole night coding and people going for hours and then what has been your longest stint of non-stop coding? 
<laughs> um, in long, like a, I do get into this kind of state, and I, I actually, um, I, I've actually learnt over the years that um, you can you can fall into a trap where you feel like you're being productive because you're in the zone, um, but going for many many hours, um, I've found those hours actually get less and less productive, and you don't notice it. So I don't do it much anymore. Um, I have had many days over the years where I have woken up in the morning programmed all day only stopping to food and you know to eat food and drink and use the loo and then go to bed yeah um which is not healthy or productive but that would you know if i if i added up one of those days it's probably probably 12 or 13 hours which sounds crazy wow um, yes. <laughs> that sounds crazy you know um and i try not to do that anymore because i know now that if i actually if i take a 20 30 minute break an hour break have a proper lunch break mm. break get outdoors and i come back mm. i can i can double my efficiency easily um yeah but yeah there were, there were definitely some yeah. times there where i was grinding away normally yeah. when i've got a problem in front of me <laughs> that i feel like i'm this close to solving if i just go another 10 minutes i'll get another 10 minutes and that turns into yeah very yeah. quickly <laughs> yeah, nah. i know because you always hear about it and you know we all kind of look up to steve jobs and elon musk and all of yeah. these you know the mark zuckerbergs of the world and it's just like some of the stories you hear, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know. I, I think when you're creating and you, you feel the progress that you're making, you see your things starting to take shape, it kind of, it sort of fuels this fire inside you. And, and you know. It's a drug. It is a drug. It's addictive. You're like, oh my goodness. It is a drug. I, I need to do more because I'm making progress and it feels good. And yeah, yeah. addictive. <laughs> no. Literally <laughs> that. I think... Um, What's also interesting, and I think it'd be quite good for people to know, and you mentioned it before, where in the world of medicine, we are starting to see how people's careers are transitioning into this hybrid thing now where it's more technical, yeah. perhaps a bit more med tech, product managing whilst yeah. being a clinician. Yeah. Similar to yourself, you're not a 100% clinician, neither are you a 100% coder yeah. developer. Yeah. Tell us how your average week looks like. So I really, just quickly before I answer that question, I really, really like that um, you mentioned, you know, product management and that sort of stuff there. You know, you know, my end goal is to get people engaged with technology and that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be the programmer. Um, you know, you do need, there's a, I guess the point I want to make is that there's a whole spectrum in what that can look like. You can be, a, you know, at this end, you can be a full-time clinician who is that senior clinician advocate that, that we spoke about earlier, that senior clinician who advocates for technical projects. You're, yeah. you're an expert in emergency medicine, an expert in cardiology, and you are vouching for these things. You're pushing them through. You might sit on a board of a company or a startup, um, but you're, you're a full-time clinician. You're, you're, you know, eight to five, every sort of day clinician. And then there's a whole, you know, on the other end, there's doing something like what I've done or even more extreme than I've done. You leave clinical medicine, you go become a software developer at, Google or at a startup or, or a product manager, you know, you go full balls to the wall, um, you know, in, in a startup or a health tech company and you maybe you operate as a clinical liaison where you come in and you talk to doctors because you've got, the, you know, the language, you have the relationships there. Then in, there's a whole spectrum of other things in between. So I don't know what the working arrangements are like in the UK, but, you know, you can be 0.8 in the emergency department in Australia. So 0.8 full-time equivalent. And then you can be 0.2 as a product manager, as a innovator, as, you know, whatever you want that to look like. And, and there's a whole million shades of gray in between all of those things. So I guess the point I want to make, yeah. just because you're learning to code, just because you're, um, 
getting involved with technology doesn't mean you need to drop clinical medicine necessarily. You may decide to, you may not. There's a whole spectrum in what your involvement could uh, could look like in terms of um, in terms of engaging with technology. So I want to make that really clear. In terms of my life specifically, it's a little bit complicated, but I'm work so I'm working 0.5 FTE at the moment. So um, the way I've structured that at the moment is it's essentially one week on, one week off, um, and that works quite well for me because I'm actually I'm actually working at a hospital that's quite a long way from where I live. It's about an hour and a half drive. And so I go and stay near the hospital for a couple of days while I'm, while I'm working there. Um, and that, that's actually worked really quite well for me. Um, I, I kind of do my run of clinical shifts. I know all the patients. I, I you know, um, maintain that kind of day-to-day knowledge while I'm working. And then I'm off for, um, so I do my five days and then I'm off for nine days. Um, and I think that would be a lot easier than, you know, doing two days here, then two days off, then one day on, then two days on, you know, it, it just sort of makes the mm. clinical work. I'm dealing with inpatients at the moment. So having some level of continuity of knowledge is quite useful. Um, yeah. and I've been fortunate that the hospital that I'm, you know, it's not, it's not that common to go part-time in PGY2 in your postgraduate, um, I think you'd call it your F2 year or your FY2 year. Mm. Um, you know, it's certainly not very common to do if you're not having a baby <laughs> so um, yeah, people yeah. i meet have actually just assumed that i've just got a little one at home and i'm like no i'm just so um you know that's worked quite well for me i'm fortunate that the hospital i i worked at in my my, my f1 year or my pgy one year um you know we're really i'd seen some of the stuff that i'd done in terms of technology and we're really quite willing to retain me and as part of that we're very willing to make the work arrangement flexible. So that's worked quite well for me. Um, I do know other people who um, work in startups and have one day a week where they, you know, locum in the emergency department or they locum in an outpatient clinic. Um, you know, it, it, the career is, or the profession is heading towards having more flexible working arrangements because that's what, that's what people are demanding. You know, once upon a time, um, you know, medicine was this, um, it was more than just a job and you know I don't really think of medicine as just a job but um, I think a lot of the um, the, the, the modern day um, demands of people has, has mandated these hospitals do entertain part-time arrangements and um, I'm lucky to be the best yeah, yeah absolutely and I think you touched on a good point and you kind of went over it and it just been realized is the value of what you're doing and the fact that hospitals and clinicians are seeing how much of an asset it is to have someone with your background and they're not bend over backwards, but they're a bit more accommodating is a very good place to be. And I know the cases here, especially for consultants in the UK who are involved in innovation, who are involved in startups, the fact that, you know, it, you know, it makes the hospital a bit more renowned, it mm. allows them to become a bit more efficient, be at the forefront of innovation. I yeah. know their working week is very different as to what someone in a full-time clinical role similar to them would have been. Um, and I think yeah. it's a good and important point to show your value, show the asset you are, show the mm. problem you're solving. And more than likely, you, people are kind of encouraging and accommodating, which is good. And I'm glad you mentioned it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know... Um, you know, Australia is producing more medical graduates than we ever have before, which is excellent for the community at large. You know, more doctors, more access to healthcare, lower costs, that kind of thing. That's great for the community. I guess on an individual level, if I'm selfish for a second, you know, 
it's it's harder than it's ever been to get staff specialist jobs in virtually every specialty from ed you know exactly right through to general surgery all the mega competitive specialties it's harder than it's ever been um and you know when you're applying for these jobs let's use general surgery as the example you know if you've you know you've got your fellowship you've you've finished your general surgical training it's going to be assumed that you are an expert level surgeon that's what your fellowship training is like it's going to be assumed that you're a yeah. surgeon so in a in a hyper competitive marketplace the question is not going to be who's a better surgeon it's going to be what else can you bring to the table so can you bring innovation can you bring you know a willingness mm-hmm. to engage with technology do you have a pr- track record of delivering innovation projects in a hospital well mm-hmm. if I'm a hospital administrator I look at that and I say Great. He can be a consultant general surgeon and he can, you know, launch this new team mm, that we've been wanting yeah. to do. Launches in. So um, if you have additional things under your, you know, um, under your belt, you know, traditionally that's research. And I think research will continue to be a, a prominent um, consideration in this type of setting. But, um, you know, there's a whole range of other things that could be there as well, you know, like delivering innovation projects or, you know, working at a startup or, mm. or you know, really cut, um, pushing the field forward. It's very exciting times ahead. I feel very privileged and lucky to be in this era. Yeah. And at the age, just, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I think super excited to kind of see what the next 10, 15 years. It's just this wave of opportunity that's, it's really across the board. Um, When you look at a whole range of factors, you know, hospitals have been in the dark ages for so long. Um, Engaging with technology is easier than it's ever been. You've got more, yeah, exactly. more, um, uh, I guess, um, optimism. More, more, um, more young people sort of coming into the industry, looking for new ways to go about things. Look with optimism to create change. Mm. Like it, it's, it's the next ten years are going to be yeah. so exciting as more and more of these. Yeah. Um, and we, I mean, we're seeing it everywhere already. Like it, it's, it's happening right in front of our eyes. All these fantastic startups. With every cohort that goes through the system, you, you are such a tech savvy generation, right? Mm. The Gen Z, the millennials. Yeah. So we, we probably went to Mexico 10 years ago. We're probably showing our age, <laughs> let's be honest, a good decade ago, right? Yeah, yeah. And back then we didn't really have, you know, all the, all the tech they do have right now. Yeah, right? Yeah. So imagine the 18 yeah. year old now, oh, you know, like, <laughs> like Amazon Prime, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Imagine him when he or she kind of graduates, yeah. the level of technology they would be expecting it'll probably be a shame when they get kind of slapped in the face and realize they have to use a fax machine, but I'm sure (laughs) with them that drive, (laughs) but they will bring innovation. They will bring, and you as a clinician 10 years down the line, you need to make sure you are keeping up with these juniors. Mm. You do not want to be someone that is still kind of very clueless and oblivious to technology, you know, sticking to the traditional way of medicine Mm. and we should adapt. We should innovate. And we are individuals with a very high skill set. It'd be a shame to kind of give that all up and kind of be left behind while everyone else progress around us. Um, it's funny that you mentioned fax machines. You know, I can remember when I was coming up to the end of medical school, there was lots of talk about, you know, getting your procedural skills sorted. You know, you didn't want to be that intern. You couldn't put a drip in. You couldn't do this. You wanted to get enough yeah. practice. So we all got out and did all that. And, you know, yeah, I, you know, I mostly had my drips sorted by the time I did my internship, but, um, what I did need was a procedural skills workshop on how to operate a bloody fax machine because I'd go to a new ward, it'd be a slightly <laughs> different model. Didn't know how to, you know, I'd fax the, I'd fax the wrong page or I'd fax one page instead of two or yeah. I'd fax it stapled. And 
It's really this, it's really a dive battle for one hour. I have to stop that. And I do it a good time today now, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Man. Those things are always most difficult. Yeah. Printing stickers, blood labels, oh, faxing, referral forms. Oh, mate. <laughs> no, it really is. No, it's, it's, it's been good fun. So I really am looking to the future and hoping Amazing. for it. Um, I'm conscious of time. It's super early where you are. Um, but I just want to thank you, Josh, for taking yeah. the time out to do this. It's been a massive pleasure. And I really do hope to all the listeners that are kind of just a step away from entering this mm. beautiful and incredible world of technology. Um, it really is something. And we're learning every single day how wonderful it is. Um, Josh, kind of give us a shout in terms of people who want to reach out to you. Where's the best place to contact you? And I'm sure over the next coming weeks, we'll release some podcasts that are a bit mm. more high your yeah. information, how to kind of get something out there. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to um, those podcasts, which we'll hopefully get around to doing in the next couple of weeks, um, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Josh Case, C-A-S-E, um, or the other place, probably the best place to see um, my projects more broadly is at joshcase.dev, which is my blog. Um, that's where I document all the things that I'm working on, the challenges that I'm facing and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and can I just say thank you so much for having me, guys. I think that we've had a very um, a, a great chat. It's been great to get like, your perspective on things. Absolutely. Um, great to be with mm. you. I've been sort of messaging you guys back and forth over the last couple of months. So it's great to mm. finally put a face to the name and um, look forward Absolutely. to our um, you know, collaborations going forward. And to anybody who's listening who um, you know isn't sure if – you know, technologies for them or they don't know how to get started, I'm very happy to be a point of contact for you um, to sort of get the ball rolling and, and hopefully I can I can point you in the right direction. No, that amazing. sounds amazing. I just want to thank you, Josh, and a massive thank you to all our listeners. Um, watch this space and we're just going to send all the different links on all the cool things he's working on, um, his code, Blue Book and everything, and you guys can have a wonder. Um, but thank you and see you all next week. Thank you so much, Josh. <laughs>